Do you want your middle school girl to grow into a strong, confident, and resilient young adult? So do I. The only thing is, middle school's hard for both kids and parents. Welcome to the Raising Middle School Girls podcast. I'm Janice Scholl, and I'm just a regular parent on a mission to uncover the best tips and advice for raising middle school girls. Hey there, parents. Do you feel like middle school kids just want to fit in with each other? That's what I've seen with a lot of them. Middle school girls especially just want to find a space where they feel like they belong and where their identity is valued. So what happens when a girl feels like she's the only one? Middle school is hard enough, but by adding on the complexity of being the only one or the only one of a few girls who come from a different cultural background or who look different than the majority of the students, it can be a real challenge. In today's episode, I talk with Indian-American, newly published author, and former teacher at an all-girls school, Sheetal Shah, about her experiences growing up and why diversity and inclusion matter so much within the middle school classroom. Welcome, Sheetal. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Janice. It's so nice to meet you. I want to just start by asking you, how did being an Indian-American affect your school experience growing up? Um, I'd have to say being Indian American definitely affected my school experience in a lot of different ways. Um, You know, my identity, my heritage is it's something that's part of me 24 seven. It is not something I can, you know, take off and and or rub off whenever I want to, even though I'm pretty sure during my elementary and middle school years, I did as much as I could to hide that part of who I was. Um, but it is something that is intrinsic and affects my values and attitudes more than I even realize. And so a a little bit about myself. So my parents, they immigrated to the United States from Gujarat, India, when I was, um, went in the 1970s and they moved to New York City. I was born in New York City and we moved to the suburbs when I was a baby. And so my home life was incredibly rich in Indian tradition and Indian culture. I spoke 90% of the time in Gujarati, which was our native language um, with my mom. She taught me how to read and write in Gujarati. She cooked Indian food all the time. Um, and, and we had a large community of Indian family and friends that I spent time with outside of school. And so my home life was a space where I felt really comfortable being my full self and celebrating all the different parts of my identity. And at school, my experience was a lot different. I went to a K through 12 public school that was fairly small in size. I knew pretty much every all the kids in my grade and, and in the surrounding grades, but it was predominantly white. There were probably a handful of students of color um, throughout the school. And so, you know, like most adolescent girls, especially in middle school, the you know, desire to fit in, the desire to connect with other students and feel accepted was, you know, you know, something that I felt really strongly. And knowing that I was different, I looked different, I had a name that was very different from the other kids in my class. And, and I was often mispronounced throughout the day. I mean, at the beginning of every class during roll call, I wanted to just bury my, you know, face because I was constantly reminded that I was different. So the desire to feel accepted um, meant sacrificing 
showing up as my full self at school. And so being in this space at school where, you know, I am for most of my day, right, 70% of my day is spent at school, I'm living in a little bit of discomfort. I'm living in discomfort because I don't feel I can confidently show who I fully am. And I think that affected my ability to connect with my peers and my classmates and affected my ability to develop deep bonds with those classmates and and so you know while i had friendships along the way you know i i do look back on my k through 12 experience and wonder wonder how much of it you know was my discomfort played a role in me being unafraid to speak up to stay quiet um where i was unsure of myself whereas when i went home i was the exact opposite i was loud i pushed boundaries i asked a lot of questions that um, gave my mom a run for her money, but I was I was unafraid and I was a lot bolder at home than I was at school, and I wondered how much of the lack of diversity in my K through twelve experience played a role in that. And I mean, I would also say academically, you know, my my parents were great; they were really hands off academically. My mom did not fit that stereotypical tiger mom role. And I was I was self driven just by nature, you know. That's 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 who I was, you know. I really went after things when I had an idea, and so, you know, when it came to academics, I put a lot of pressure on myself to do well in school, and I put a lot of pressure on myself to do well in subjects like math and science that I really wasn't interested in. But I felt this pressure to do well in those subjects to uphold this model minority myth that I really I didn't learn about until I was an adult. But now I look back on it and I was like, oh, I think that's what that was, because I was I I remember thinking, well, I'm not smart. I'm not academically successful unless I do really well in those subjects or I'm not Indian enough or Asian enough if I don't do well in those subjects. And but really, where I was naturally drawn was in the humanities, in the arts, and in you know uh, writing and reading. I would take suitcases of books to India with me when we would go for weeks at a time, and I would just sit with my nose in a book. You know, my summers I would just read all through summer, and that's where this, the subjects that I was drawn to. But I felt the pressure to do really well in, in, in other areas. And I think, you know, when we talk about the model minority myth, it's incredibly harmful for that reason, because it prohibits, you know, students and children to really pursue what they're, what they're interested in. It erases differences and the unique talents that is among the Asian American, Indian American community. And I think it affected me and that it took me longer to figure out what I wanted to do in life. You know, I kind of went through some circles, you know, with this constant battle of, oh, maybe I should do that, but really I want to do this instead. And so I realize that now, and I think through a lot of the diversity training and affinity spaces that I've been part of, you know, these last 10, 15 years as a, um, as a faculty member has helped me build that confidence to just to go after what it what it is that gives me purpose and joy. And so while I definitely wouldn't want to 
repeat those K through 12 years. I don't know a lot of people that would want to. I, I definitely would say I learned a lot from that experience and I wouldn't want to change it because of what I learned. Like I remember 10th and 11th grade starting to care less about the, the, the social things and the need for acceptance and really looking forward to college and my life after college and realizing that, hey, I know what spaces of inclusion feel like because I feel that in different parts of my life and I know what spaces of exclusion feel like. And so now I have this power. I know I have this power because I've experienced it to now walk into spaces where I can create that feeling and that sense of belonging. And I can now be aware of, I can walk into spaces and I can be aware of, is this a space where I'm going to feel valued? And if I don't, I can change it or I can walk away. And there's so much power to be able to walk away. So I think those years K through 12, I learned so much and it gave me so much awareness on how, on like the power I have within myself to really shape the rest of my life. Yeah. I, there's, there's so much that you said that I think is really important for people to hear and to understand. Uh, one of which is the fact that little kids, young kids don't recognize these stereotypes. They just pick up things. And, and so it's really interesting that you were picking up the, the stereotype or the expectation that you were supposed to be good in certain subjects, even when they weren't explicitly told to you. As we grow older, we recognize, okay, well, we know what the expectations are for Asian Americans. We know what the expectations are for Indian Americans or, or Black Americans. And we are, we are not recognizing that as younger children and even going into middle school, that we haven't, our kids don't have the ability to question those yet. All they know is that they feel different. And so uh, it's just so wonderful that you are able to recognize that it, it existed and that you were able to see that learning, experiencing it is now something you can, you can use to help train people and teach kids in the future. Absolutely. And I think there is a lot of value in starting to talk to children at a young age about implicit and explicit, you know, behaviors of racism. Yeah. Right. And it, it, I, I'm raising two, two children of my own, 10 and 8, the next generation of Indian Americans. And from a very young age, we're having conversations about skin color and inclusion and exclusion and being aware of the communities that they're in and asking those questions. Because I think the younger they are and they, the more that they're aware of, of, these, of these situations, the more it empowers them to be who they are and to, and to identify, hey, this is not about me personally. I'm not weird. It's not that I'm not smart. It's... So when we uh, when we allow the system to of, of racism to to do its thing, then we're basically allowing a system to dictate a child's future and what you know what opportunities are in front of them. And so by by being able to have these conversations, these explicit conversations with children about the system that's in it works, it puts the power back in their hands on what 
it is that they want to do with their life and how they want to use their voice, because no longer is it personal. No longer is it about them, who they are as a character, what their, their characters, their values, but they realize it is a system in place that they can fight, that they can stand up against. Yeah. And one of the ways we can fight is by changing what our kids and specifically our students in the K through 12 system are exposed to. So when you became an educator, I'd like to know how much influence and or kind of control did you have over the books your students were exposed to? Was it easy for you to share the voices of women from diverse backgrounds with your students? That's a great question. You know, when I initially, um, became a teacher. When I left graduate school, my, my first job as a teacher was at a public all-girls school in New York City. And I was definitely uncomfortable to teach anything outside the curriculum, the curriculum that I was hired to teach. And knowing that at the end of the curriculum, my students would have to take a state, take a state exam that would reflect my performance as a teacher. So that that pressure is real for teachers. And so I can definitely empathize the reluctance to veer away from the curriculum. I was fortunate, however, to be in a school where my seventh grade curriculum that was laid out for me reflected the Black and Hispanic students that I taught. It was a course on U.S. history on immigration in, uh, with that specific lens. And so the, the teacher before me, who's, who was at the time then the vice principal, had made it a point that a large chunk of the curriculum spoke to the identity of my Hispanic students and my Black African-American students. And so their voice was represented um, quite strongly. And then I also taught a subject under the umbrella of global studies, and in, that was in with my ninth graders. And so it was really easy for them, for me to pull resources and stories that related to specific units of topics. So if I was teaching about ancient India, I knew I could pull excerpts from the Ramayana, which, you know, you can go deeper into the meaning of Diwali or talk about Hindu goddesses and female representation in Hinduism. And knowing that, you know, I had a student body that was predominantly female or identified as she, her. And so eventually teaching, you know, and then teaching at an all girls schools, it was welcomed to be able to bring in, you know, uh, viewpoints of Mary Wollstonecraft or Mary Estelle when I talked about the enlightenment movement even though the textbooks would dedicate a few lines to these, you know, these important women of like the feminist movement, I knew I could, if I had the resources, I could make space in my curriculum to, to, um, to cover those topics. And I had the backing of my, my school and my administration. The challenging part, though, is that I had to build a lot of things from scratch. And so I had to find the resources to accompany my lesson plan. So that means really going through websites, fact-checking, making sure they're credible resources, and then coming up with the activities to really help my students and apply what they were learning so they can make connections. And so I needed the time, I needed the resources, and then I'm not taking things away from the curriculum, I'm adding to it. So I have to make that time in the unit. And so those are all definitely challenges I faced when adding these diverse voices and voices of women into the curriculum. The onus was on me to make it happen. 
um, when it wasn't often laid out for me in the curriculum that I was taught, you know, hired to teach. Yeah. And we all know that our teachers are seriously strained in how much time and effort is dedicated to making sure kids, as you mentioned, meet their state testing requirements and mm-hmm. all of the the materials that they have to cover already. So I can imagine it was a huge hurdle, but it's important. Can you talk to us about how how does inclusive curriculum and literature impact our girls? Oh my gosh. It's, I mean, every time I did it, it was worth it. It was worth the time and effort because students that are, when they see themselves in the curriculum, when they see that their gender, their identity, you know, is in the curriculum, it has a profound impact on their sense of belonging and their self-esteem. So the the first time I saw myself in a curriculum was in college. Um, I took a course on the South Asian diaspora, and it was the first time that I read a variety of publications that captured, you know, the South Asian immigrant experience and the diversity among those experiences. And I remember walking away and feeling, wow, I was really part of something. And my story was normalized. My culture, the experiences was normalized. And when it felt, when I felt that it was normalized, I felt like, well, I'm really part of the fabric of American society. I was really part of America's story and I was part of society. No longer did I feel different or an outlier or an exception. And so I remember that having a really transformational experience in my development and self-esteem. And this was in, in college. And so, and I also remember thinking, wow, I feel so, I was so engaged in that class. Of all the courses I'd taken, that was the class where I was, you know, more engaged and just more likely to do the work during my free time. And I saw the same thing in my classroom. And I always tried to hold on to that experience to motivate me to try as much as I could to create that experience for my my students in the middle school and in the high school and making sure that they had access to the stories that represented their identity. Because I knew, and, and there were times where, you know, the students that were struggling the most in my class became the most engaged students in my class because they could relate to the content. They could connect to it. And oftentimes I'd give them choice on how they demonstrated their understanding. So not only are they able to connect, but now they can showcase it in a way that they felt most confident in demonstrating their learning. So the, the feeling of judgment wears away. They feel safe. They accepted. And their academic engagement increases. And, you know, I often talk about the imagination gap and, you know, um, students and especially girls, um, you know, struggling to see themselves in specific roles um, because of the lack of diversity or their lack of women's, you know, represented in those fields, specifically in like STEM fields and in politics or civics, areas that are heavily dominated by men. And so, Bringing, um, you know, representation of women and uh, women of color into the classroom in those fields really helps them, really helps close that imagination gap, really helps those girls begin to see themselves in roles that they hadn't imagined before. When we're talking about inclusive curriculum, you know, and in, in the classroom, I think there's also things that schools can do to help create a more inclusive environment 
in the school to promote a sense of belonging. And so I think, you know, and teachers can help promote this as well, but the value of creating spaces for students of color to come together and connect and celebrate their identity is incredibly rewarding and powerful. And so these affinity spaces, you know, it's a space, it's a safe space where students, you know, that are marginalized or in the minority can talk about their experiences, where they feel seen, they feel heard, and spaces where they can celebrate where they come from. And I I just know as a faculty member where I've had the opportunity to to moderate or, you know, supervise some of these affinity spaces, I walked away feeling incredibly fulfilled and empowered, just listening, just being in the presence of other students, um, whether I was a lot older than them or not, you know, there were, there were experiences that bonded us and connected us. And so I have to say they're rewarding for the students, but then also faculty and the adults in the building as well. I think that just the fact that an affinity group exists shows that student, that group of students, that like people, adults in the environment recognize that your experience is different. And so again, it just validates that, you know, differences are respected in addition to providing that space for community. Absolutely. Intentionally designing those spaces, it tells the students you matter. We, we, we see that, you know, your the way you move through life might be different from others and that matters to us. So we're going to make sure you have that space where you can unpack those things. Yep. That's great. It's so important. And, but I've got to ask you, it feels like when you were in New York, you were at a school where there was a large population of Latino and black students. And so it was, it was easier from a student composition position to, to include diverse voices and teachings in your curriculum. Does inclusion benefit only the group being included? And I'm asking this because of your experience. There are many students who are the only one or only one of a few. And does does inclusion and diverse education help everyone even in a less diverse environment? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is, you know, the, the, the other beauty to in creating inclusion and diversity in the curriculum is that it benefits everyone. So a curriculum that is inclusive of different identities and cultures, it gives students a window into a world outside of their own. It gives them a new perspective and it helps build their muscle, a compassion, greater compassion and empathy for stories and experiences outside of their own world. And so when children can see the talents and achievements of those that share a different identity, it also really helps break down those stereotypes and helps open their minds and and, and see that, oh, wow, like to learn about all the contributions of all these women of color definitely helps me see that, okay, they're, you know, it, it just expands their mind. And it's especially true when it's when it's boys reading about the achievements of girls and women, because now they're able to see girls and women, you know, uh, achieve great things regardless of their gender. And so it can be a beautiful thing when, when inclusion um, is put into their curriculum, impacting positively 
everyone in the classroom. And even for children of color, for someone like, you know, me, who's, you know, grew up Indian American, is Indian American, um, for me to learn about the experiences of, you know, my, my black friends, my black colleagues to, and to learn about, you know, um, you know, the cultures and experiences from different parts of the world was eye-opening for me. And so even for, you know, children of color to learn about other races and cultures outside of their own can be impactful for them. Yeah. And I have to admit, when I asked the question, it was a loaded question because I believe in your answer. That's how I felt already. But but hearing it validated from your perspective is because you've taught so many students is really important. And, and I think there is there is something to respecting everyone's uniqueness and difference, right? So there are similarities between you and other Indian American um, descendants. And mm -hmm. there are differences, right? Not all Indian Americans are the same. That's how we end up with stereotypes. We're believing that yep. people are the same. So there's so much diversity within groups. And yeah. when we when we include diverse education and inclusivity, we're also teaching students who feel different, but might not look different, that it's okay to be unique. And I, I can't see a scenario where that isn't of huge value, right? I think every day we can teach our kids that their ideas and their uniqueness matters and is okay. We're doing a good thing that day. Absolutely. And to know that we need unique perspectives and values and there is great value in bringing in you bringing a perspective to the table that no one else has shared before there is great and, and teams need that right businesses need that schools need that we need the diversity of perspectives in order to grow and move forward you know we fall flat if we're all thinking the same way i know there's comfort in that but in order for us to really push and grow, we need to make sure that we are intentionally designing spaces with a, a diversity of perspectives, views, and experiences. Yes. Groupthink has generally not been a good thing in companies, in history, or anything. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. let's start training them young. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. and to do, you're doing just that because to help bridge the gap, you've written Shakti Girls. Can you tell us what Shakti means? Yes. So Shakti in Hindi means simply power, energy, force. In Hinduism, in the religion, it means the power of the feminine. And so it's a feminine energy that's responsible for creating and maintaining the universe, much like how women give birth to life. Or, and so there are a lot of manifestations of this feminine energy in Hinduism through the Hindu goddesses like Lakshmi and, and Durga, and it's represented through creativity or the arts. And so in essence, Shakti is your, your inner power that can be represented through a talent, um, a passion or skill. You know, the, the first time I actually... Um, really paid attention to the word Shakti. I, I was in my 20s and a friend of mine had shared with me, an Indian friend of mine had shared with me that her middle name was Shakti. And I paused because it was the first time I had learned that there was an Indian friend with a middle name that was not her father's name. So, you know, 
coming from a, a pretty patriarchal culture, it was normal for, for me to hear that, you know, our middle names were our father's name. And but here I was with a friend whose parents decided to give her a, a feminine middle name and a name that's incredibly empowering and that helps her, reminds her of the power that she has within herself. And so I held on to that word for a very long time, constantly reflecting on it and thinking about my own Shakti. And when it came to, uh, you know, coming up, when it came to coming up with the title for this book, you know, I immediately came to Shakti Girls. But then I questioned myself like, oh, it sounds a lot similar like the other books that are out there celebrating women and I, I want something unique and different. And so I had a bunch of other ideas, but I eventually came back to Shakti Girls. I mean, Shakti just really had a strong pull. And knowing that the women represented in this book, you know, they were, you know, embody this Shakti and they manifest it and show it in so many different ways and making a difference in this world following their Shakti, you know, I, I honestly felt like I couldn't name the book anything else. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the perfect name to the book. And can you tell us what are some of the stereotypes you're trying to break down through Shakti Girls? Sure. So Shakti Girls is a collection of rhyming stories about remarkable women from India who made a mark in the world. And so these women are from a variety of industries, arts, math, aviation, politics, and and they're all making a mark in these areas. Some are well-known, some are lesser well-known. And their stories, I really wanted to bring them into light and share them with the world, especially for girls and children of color, so that they can see themselves in roles that they haven't seen yet. They can see that Pulitzer Prizes can be won, records can be broken, and really help them grow close that imagination gap and allow other children to see that what's possible for girls of color and children of color and that they can achieve great things regardless of where they come from and regardless of their gender. The earlier we can start reinforcing and teaching our girls that message, the more natural it will be for them to embody that themselves. Absolutely. And start untangling all of these, you know, constraints that are put on them from a very young age so that they free, feel freer from the very beginning and for a longer time as they develop and grow and think about their future. Absolutely. Now, I have a question for you as a middle school educator. Mm -hmm. You know, this age group, I find that their, their eyes are starting to be opened to the world. They're starting to look through their own lens at the way things are, and they're questioning them, unlike what we do as adults. And, and kind of like the adults have set the boundaries and what we think and what we believe before middle school. But at that age, the girls are starting to really come up with it on their own. But girls in middle school are still learning how to be a good friend and stand up for what's right. What is one way girls in middle school who are not in the minority can support their friends of color? Oh, that's, a, that's a really great question. And I know middle school can be really challenging for all girls. I think one thing that middle school girls could do to support their friends of color is really get to know your friend. Get to know them outside of school. 
spend time with her on weekends in her home, eat the traditional foods that she eats, attend the events that she goes to on the weekends, really get to know her, her background, her family, and develop an appreciation for her culture. And I think when you do that, you develop a bond that is deeper and that is solid. So when it does come time for you to stand up for your friend or stand by your friend during some tough times, you won't have to think about whether or not you should do it. You'll naturally want to do it because you've developed a love for that friend and all of who she is. And I'm grateful to have had some friends throughout my experience who were those rocks for me. Um, and I also have to say, you know, and this this is a second thing, and it might be harder for middle schoolers, but when you walk into a space, ask the questions, who's here, who's not, whose voice is excluded? Asking those three questions develops you as a leader and as a friend as a colleague in any walk of life and making it a habit to ask those questions. So when you step into student government uh, meetings or athletic practices, ask those questions. Who's here? Who's not? Who's been excluded? Yeah, I think that is a question that we as adults can ask more often as well, uh, because it helps those of us who it's not the first thing we're thinking when we're walking in a room to Mm assess the situation and come from a place of empathy for those who are feeling in the minority in that moment. Absolutely. And awareness is the first step, right? When you are aware of a problem, then you're able to start thinking about the solutions to those problems. So really take a moment and assess and be aware of what's around you. Yeah. And as you were talking about how um, how kids can help their friends of color that come from diverse backgrounds that maybe they don't have many, such as you, it sounds like you tried to hide some of your Indianness. And so I wonder if there's words or questions our kids could ask their friends who come from a different cultural background that would help open up that door. And and I'm thinking, you know, if my if my daughter has an Indian friend, then maybe the Indian friend wouldn't be comfortable inviting my daughter because she's like, she's white. She doesn't know our culture. But if our kid were to say, Hey, I'd like, I'd like to try X, Y, Z, this particular food that you know is part of your culture or that your, your friend is bringing to lunch, or I would love to learn about and then fill in the blank because, you know, most of the Indians we know celebrate different, different holidays, different events. There are ways that our kids could probably ask an open-ended question just to give their friends an understanding that like, hey, I recognize that there are things that are different in your household and in your culture, and I'm open to that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Like show curiosity, you know, in in a non-judging way, like a genuine curiosity for wanting to learn about your friend's life. Um, and all aspects of it. I think that is, that's such a compliment. I I love it when, when folks come to me and they say, oh, I I really want to make this for dinner. Am I doing it the right way? You know, do I have the right spices? And, you know, I never once do I feel like, oh, there's extra burden on me. I actually translate that as curiosity and wanting to bring my culture into your home. And so uh, that, that is appreciation for, I mean, the way I see it, that is appreciation right there. And I think that's a great way for middle schoolers to begin that conversation yeah. about life outside of school. 
Um, uh, and, and then going and then going to their home and trying that food, maybe the mom will, will say, okay, yeah, I will make some chana masala, you know, for your friend who's been asking about it. And so that's a great way, great way to then bring that, bring that friend home. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that there's going to be people who are interested in Shakti Girls for their young child. Uh, can you please tell us where we can learn more about the book and where we can find information from you? Absolutely. So the book officially releases on March 6th during uh, Women's History Month, and they'll be able to find their copy on my website, sheetal-shaw.com, or they can check Amazon. Janice, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I think you gave us a really great perspective on, you know, experiencing life as as an American, but with a different culture brought to the table in really great ways that we can support one another and continue to learn. Thank you for listening to the Raising Middle School Girls podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more conversations with experts designed to help you support your middle school girl, please hit subscribe. You can also sign up for the newsletter at the link in the show notes to receive emails about tips and resources, upcoming events, and new podcast episodes, all designed to support you and your child.